Heavenly Father, um, we come before your throne of grace right now. I'm mindful, Lord, of where James says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, for as such you will receive a more strict judgment. And Lord, I come before your throne and I present your people to you and with uh, an open Bible, I am asking, Lord, that you would see fit to use this unworthy servant for the purpose of ministering to your people. Take what is about to be said and use it to advance your cause, to advance your kingdom, to cause us, even as Pastor Mike earlier prayed, to persevere in the faith. Let us, Lord, through your word, behold you. Let us be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. And let us wrap our hearts and our minds around the implications of that. Help us to understand who you are and help us, Lord, to know if, in fact, we are or are not in the faith. Give grace and speak and let your grace be poured out in whatever way it needs to be poured out. Convicting grace, loving grace, grace that comes to us in the form of challenge and exhortation and help and hope, Lord. We just pray that your grace would prevail. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to begin this morning by asking a series of questions to try to set the stage for what we're going to be looking at. Um, And the questions are as follows. Um, Where do you stand or sit in relation to God? Are you born again? Do you have a relationship with God? Do you experience genuine fellowship with the Almighty? Will you go to heaven when you die? Are you saved? How do you know? Do you have assurance of your salvation? Can you say with confidence, I know that when I die, I will go to heaven? How do you know? On what basis can a person have assurance of their salvation? If you are looking for answers to these questions, there is perhaps no better place to go than First John. John's desire for his readers is that they would experience genuine fellowship with God that overflows into a love for the brethren and is accompanied by an assurance that they are saved. And near the end of his letter, John declares in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know. He wants them to know that you have eternal life. He wants them to be assured of their salvation, to know that they have eternal life. But he does not want them to embrace a false assurance. He does not want them to think that they are saved when they are not. He wants them to have a clear understanding of what it means to be saved. And he wants them to be able to evaluate themselves and conclude that they are indeed saved and have eternal life. This is evident throughout his epistle, throughout First John, and it is evident in our passage today. I'm going to ask you to turn in your copy of God's Word to First John chapter 2. And we are entitling the message this morning, Assurance of Salvation. We will wrap this message around two truths for believers to embrace regarding the biblical doctrine of assurance of salvation. But before we dive into the passage, it helps to understand that there are three aspects regarding our assurance of salvation. 
objective, subjective, and experiential. And there is much that can be said regarding each of these aspects. There is the objective aspect, okay? This is where we agree with the objective truth of God's word and we embrace what it teaches regarding the holiness of God, our sin and our separation from God and how the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to save us from eternal damnation. We understand that God calls us to repent of our sin and to trust in Christ alone for our salvation. We know that to as many as have received Christ, to them he has given the right to be children of God. And we see that in John chapter 1 verse 12. We trust the promise of Christ where he declares, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death into life. We see that in John 5, 24. If you have repented of your sin and have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, then based upon the objective truth of God's word, you have reason to believe that you are saved. There is also the subjective aspect regarding our assurance of salvation. Uh, This is where we sense that we are saved. Such a sense is rooted in the objective truth of God's word and leaves us with a sense that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit of God indwells us. He takes up residence in us. Our bodies are a temple in whom the Holy Spirit of God dwells, the Bible teaches. And the Spirit cries out to God with groanings that are too deep for words. And he guides us inwardly, morally. When we fall into sin, the Spirit convicts us. And such conviction is something that we feel inwardly. We grieve the Spirit. We feel bad when we sin. We mourn over our sin. And the Spirit directs us to the Savior. Jesus is our Savior. He is our only hope. He is our advocate. He has made propitiation for our sin. And Paul in Romans 8.16 tells us that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. Genuine believers are indwelt by the Spirit, and therefore they have an inner sense that they are, in fact, children of God. Finally, there is the experiential aspect regarding our assurance of salvation. The genuine believer will experience a transformation of life. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are new. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, teaches that faith without works is dead. His whole point throughout James 2 is that genuine faith always results in a changed life in which good works are evident. He is not saying that we are saved by our work. He is saying that saving faith works. And John addresses this experiential aspect of salvation in the verses that we are looking at today. John presents two truths for believers to embrace regarding the biblical doctrine of assurance of salvation. And so let us consider truth number one. Truth one, assurance of salvation is accompanied by obedience to God. We see this in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Verse three begins with the conjunction and this takes us back to what John has already communicated. 
And Pastor Mike Berry earlier made reference to this. John has already told us that God is light. Those who have fellowship with God walk in the light. Those who walk in the light are aware of and they confess their sin. Those who confess their sin experience forgiveness for their sin. John tells his readers, he writes to them so that they would not sin. And he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sin, not just ours, but for the sin of the whole world. And so based upon that, we have much reason for encouragement as we are reminded of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And so John has already clued us in with some signs of salvation. Saved people walk in the light, acknowledge, confess their sin. They confess to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for them, who was raised from the dead, and the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father. Genuine believers embrace Christ, the truth about Christ. This is, in fact, what John later declares in chapter 5, verse 1 of First John. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. First John chapter two, verse three begins with the conjunction and what follows builds upon and it expands what John has already declared. In verses three through five, a John makes it clear that salvation is accompanied by obedience to God. Verse 3 states the truth. Verse 4 illustrates the truth negatively. And verse 5 illustrates the truth positively. The truth stated, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. John declares that we can know that we have come to know him. We can know right now in the present. We can know that we have come to know him. John is referring to an intimate relational knowledge of Christ. And the way for us to know if we have in fact come to know Christ is if we keep his commands. We can know that our salvation is legitimate if the fruit of such salvation is that we keep the commands of Christ. Now, please understand, we are not saved by law keeping, but we who are saved keep the commands of Christ. And however imperfectly that might be, we nevertheless seek to honor the Lord through keeping his commands. Part of what is implied here is that we know the commands of Christ. We know what the Lord Jesus Christ says to us. It is important that we keep the Lord's commands. To keep means to guard, to be watchful, to have a positive attitude toward, to obey, to vouchsafe. Uh, true believers submit themselves to the commands of Christ. They do not argue against or flatly reject what the Lord says. They are eager to know what the Lord commands and they seek to obey the Lord. John later tells us in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. When we as believers bask in the love of God, it follows that we will desire to and experience success in keeping his commands. This is not a burden. It is not a drag. It's not a bummer. We view obedience to the Lord as a joy. We are thrilled to obey because we know the Lord and we are convinced that he always has our best in mind. His commands, we know, are for our good. They are for our protection. 
God is fighting for our own joy. We know this about our loving God, and so we carefully keep his commands. If it is true that knowing Christ results in obedience to his commands, then it is fair to say that rejecting his commands is a sign that we have not come to know him. This week, I read an article about a pastor of a large evangelical church in the state of Missouri. He was devoted to the study of God's word. He was raised in a very religious family. In his 40 years as a professing believer, he had missed church perhaps 12 Sundays. He had completely memorized 18 books of the Bible. And yet, after 20 years of pastoral ministry, he declared, quote, I am walking away. From the faith. After this announcement, it eventually became known that this pastor was involved in an adulterous relationship. I wonder if there was a connection there. Paul gives charge to his young pastor friend in 1 Timothy 1 18, where he says, Fight, fight. The good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. The Missouri pastor would have done well to heed what Paul commands to Timothy, and he would have done well to consider carefully what John tells us in our passage today. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, John tells us that those who know Christ keep his commands. The fact that this pastor eventually rejected the Lord's commands indicates that perhaps, perhaps he never truly knew the Lord. Later, John tells us in 1 John 2, 19, just a few verses later, really, they went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. As it turned out, the pastor in Missouri had gotten involved in sin. He had not kept the commands. He committed adultery. He failed to obey. And based upon what John tells us, we have reason to believe This pastor perhaps never truly knew the Lord. He knew of the Lord. He could talk about the Lord. He preached sermons. I would venture to guess he preached some good sermons from time to time, preaching the word of God. He memorized books of the Bible, but he failed to keep the Lord's commands. And worse yet, worse yet. He failed to throw himself down at the foot of the cross and to confess to the Lord Jesus Christ his sin and his need for forgiveness. Had he done so, we have no reason to think that the Lord would not have responded in mercy and grace and the Lord would have forgiven him for his sin. And so John states the truth. He presents us with a principle. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. One of the ways that we can discern if we have truly been saved is if we keep the Lord's commands. John keeps this truth in mind as he presents presents us with a negative illustration of this truth. The truth illustrated negatively. Verse 4, the one who says... I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John brings to life what he is saying. Suppose we have a person among us who says, I have come to know him. This person is making a verbal 
profession, folks hear him saying, I know the Lord. I've been born again. I am in fellowship with Christ. Such a person may say the right things, but John fixes our attention here on behavior. This man who says he knows the Lord, he says, is not keeping the commands of the Lord. His fruit is not good. He does not obey Christ. Rather, he is living in unrepentant sin. He may say the right things, but his actions betray his faith. John's conclusion seems severe. Such a person is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He says, I have come to know him. John says, he is a liar. Such a man has not come to know the Lord. Clearly, our confession of faith must be accompanied by conduct. Cornerstone is filled by the grace of God with folks whose lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel. We have repented of our sin and we have come to faith in Christ. And by the grace of God, we are walking in the newness of life. We know the commands of the Lord and it is our desire to obey. One of the things that Pastor Milton so often says about this particular congregation as he expresses his appreciation for all of you guys is how all you want All you want is to know what does God in his word have to say and what a blessing it is as one of the pastors to know that irregardless of what we say, as long as if what we say springs forth from the word and it's a reflection of the very word of God as he intended it to be understood, then you guys are pleased. Thank you so much for who you are. And this is an indicator in my mind of the grace of God in your life that you have, in fact, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I fear, I fear that there might be a Judas among us. I fear that there may be some who say they know the Lord, but by their behavior, they deny the Lord. Perhaps you are one of those persons. You say you know the Lord, but you do not keep his commands. God in his grace is exposing you because it is his desire that you experience the new birth by repenting of your sin and turning to Christ for salvation. You need to know, as John declares back in In chapter 1, verse 7, that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross, his willingness to die in our place. It is through him that we can experience cleansing from our sin. You need to know that Jesus is our advocate, as John says in chapter 2, verse 1. Implied is that he was raised from the dead, now at the right hand of the Father, where he pleads our case. He argues in defense of all of those who have placed their trust and their faith in Christ. And the conclusion, the verdict, not guilty. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, John tells us in verse 2, has made propitiation for our sin. This means that the wrath of God that should be poured out upon us was poured out upon Christ. He was punished for our sin. He died in our place. He is a good God who desires the very best for us. And through his death and resurrection, we are empowered To follow him. I ask you. What is it that might keep you. From the savior. What sin. Are you unwilling to surrender. 
What are you afraid of? You might think there is no hope for you. You might think, I can't surrender my sin. I will never get to the point where keeping God's commands is my delight. And I am here to tell you that there is power in the gospel to transform the vilest of sinners. And John continues with a contrasting conjunction. He uses the word but. This is to contrast what he has just said with what he is about to say. But, and this leads us to the truth illustrated positively. Positively, whoever keeps his word. In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Here we have an example of a person who has reason to know that he has truly come to know the Lord. John tells us that he keeps his word. And this gives us hope. It is possible for a person once dead in transgression and sin to repent of sin and embrace Christ, to become born again and to experience from the inside out a transformation of life. This is possible through the gospel. Consider carefully what John is saying through this verse. Whoever keeps, this is present tense, active voice. Whoever right now actively keeps God's word, this is what we can conclude. In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Perfected is the Greek word. Oh, my goodness. I practiced it and I knew I would blow it. (laughs) T-E-T-E-L-I-O-T-A-I. I I took Greek in seminary, but I'm tongue twisted right now. Teleotai. And it means to fulfill to be brought to full measure in him, the one who keeps the Lord's words, the love of God, God's agape love towards him has proven to accomplish its purpose. The verb has been perfected, is in the perfect tense, emphasizing the ongoing result of a completed action. God has shown his love to us primarily through the sacrifice of his son at Calvary. God's love for us is a transforming love. It empowers us. It is the reason that we keep his word because he loves us and has moved in our lives and has caused us to be new. As a result, we are then able to keep his word. We know that God's love in us has truly been perfected on the basis that we keep his word and God's love continues its work in our lives as we, by grace, persevere in keeping his word. Conversely, if you do not keep his word, then we might conclude a deficiency in our understanding and experience of God's love for us. John here is not commanding us to keep his word as much as he is describing what happens when we truly encounter the agape love of God. God's love, which we see most clearly demonstrated at the foot of the cross, is a transforming love. And we know that God's love in us has been perfected when we keep his word. This tells us that any failure on our part to keep the Lord's commands, any failure to keep the word of the Lord, is the result of our failure to know and experience the love of God for us. Let's back up for a moment. Let's consider John's theology, his understanding of God. He has a strong sense. It seems like of all of the apostles, he's one of those apostles who seems to have Uh, perhaps the strongest sense of just how much it is that God loves him. We see this in his gospel. John 13, 23. Listen to what John says. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples. This would be John. And he describes this disciple himself as whom Jesus loved. 
John 19, 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. This is a reference that John makes of self. The disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby. Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. John 22. And so she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Again, a reference to John. Is there any question that John had a sense that the Lord Jesus Christ loved him intimately, deeply, personally, relationally? John 21, 7 says, That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, and this is interesting to me, it's the Lord. He understood the love of Christ, and when he saw Christ, he was one on the other side of his Resurrection to be able to more quickly than Peter identify. That's the Lord. John 21. Verse 20. Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Again, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper. Clearly, clearly. John knew and experienced the love of Christ And John's love for his readers is the overflow of the love of God in his life. Consider what John says in 1 John 4, 7. And you might be wondering, man, this guy is jumping all over. He's going to all of these verses and blah, blah, blah. And I'll tell you what, John is hard to nail down. If you understand John, you understand he says things over and over and over again. And you read a verse and you think of all kinds of other verses that pour into that. And it's like he he doesn't think linear. He thinks in these concentric circles and he's got an idea and he builds upon it. Then he builds upon it. Then he builds upon it. And by the time you're done, you're just like completely blown away by what John has to say about our loving God and about his purposes for our life. But in 1 John 4, 7, this is what it says. Beloved. Let us love one another. Again, we are underscoring the love of God. He says, love one another for love is from God. God is the source of love. And everyone who loves is born of God and he knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son, cross-reference John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Why, John, why has he done this? So that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He is the initiator. We love him because he first loved us. He loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, it only makes sense. We also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And so here John declares that God is love. He reminds us of the grandest demonstration of God's love for us by taking us to the foot of the cross where we behold the nail-scarred feet and hands and the crown of thorns bathed in his own blood, hanging from a cross for our sin. And what John does is he teases out the implications of the love of God for us. We love one another. It is rooted in the cross. From beginning to end because of who he is and what he has done and the difference he makes in us. We then ought to love one another. We know that God's love has been perfected in us when we keep his word. Earlier, John refers to keeping his commands. Now he speaks of keeping his word. There's overlap for sure. But in keeping God's word, we move beyond a mere keeping of his commands. We keep his word. We keep his Logos, our treasuring of the Logos of God is an indicator that we have come to understand and embrace the agape love of God. And so we know that we have come to know God on the basis that we keep his commands. Our keeping of God's word shows that in us, the love of God has truly been perfected. 
God's loving agenda for our transformation is witnessed in our keeping of his word. Assurance of salvation is accompanied by obedience to God. Let's now transition. Truth number two. Number two. Assurance of salvation is accompanied by Christ-like behavior. Christ-like behavior. Let us consider the truth stated. Verse 5b. By this we know that we are in him. And then he says in verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. John presents another way that we can know that we are in him. This is another way that we can be assured that we have fellowship with the Lord. John says it this way. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If we are abiding in Christ, it follows that we will walk in the same manner as Christ. We will model, we will mimic Jesus in our attitudes and actions. John records the words of Christ. And listen to what we hear from the Lord as one who modeled for us the example of submission to the Father. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 12.27, Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane on the night in which he is about to be betrayed by Judas. And he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Again, he is submitting himself to the will of the Father, keeping the command of the Father. Matthew, in his gospel, this is a parallel account. He tells us in Matthew twenty six thirty nine again, in the garden, Jesus went a little beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Let the cup of your wrath that is going to be poured out upon me, this cup that I must drink from, let it pass from me, but not what I want, but what you want, your will be done. John 19.30, we read, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. What was finished? A life of perfect obedience to the Father was finished. The work necessary to atone for our sin was finished. The punishment of God the Father towards sinners was taken upon himself by the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of a perfect sacrifice for imperfect sinners was finished. And what these verses highlight is the fact that Jesus submitted to the will of his father. And such submission was for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners such as you and I. Never has the world witnessed a greater humility. Never has the world witnessed a greater love. The Lord Jesus lived a life of loving submission to the Father. His was a life marked by love and compassion and mercy. John tells us he was full of grace and truth. He was willing to suffer hardship for the benefit of others. He sacrificed his very life for our good. And we are called to walk in his steps to emulate him, to reflect him, to be conformed into the image of Christ. And here John clues us to the fact that we know we are in him when we walk in the same manner as Christ walked. Christ's likeness is not an option. But what does this look like? What are concrete ways in my daily life that I can model 
such humble, selfless, sacrificial attitude. I had a long day at work. I started my day very early. After a 14-hour work day, all I wanted to do, go home, eat dinner, go to bed, fall asleep, no interruptions. This seems like a good plan to me. There is the problem, right? Me. But on my way home, my beautiful wife phones me and she needs me to pick up a few things from the store. And so she provides me with a list of 53 things to get. (laughs) Amazingly, I am in the spirit and happily agree to stop by the store. When I arrive home, I discover there is no dinner ready for me. My wife quickly throws some leftover spaghetti in the microwave from five days ago. (laughs) Now, this is hypothetical. Please understand. I'm just kind of making this up. This is not really true, but it could be. A few minutes later, I inhale my meal, remembering to thank my wife. Oh, honey, thank you so much for blessing me with this wonderful meal. And then I hasten to bed and I fall fast asleep. And then it's two in the morning. True story. I hear my child throwing up outside my bedroom door. My wife rolls over and she says, I'm tired. Will you get up and help your son? (laughs) I don't know if she said it exactly like that, but for dramatic effect. Again, I have a choice. I can humbly seize upon the opportunity to serve my wife and my child, or I can roll over on my good ear, pretending not to hear (laughs) what my wife is asking me to do. But rather than use my hearing as an excuse, again, by the grace of God, I get out of bed and hasten to serve my wife and my son. By the way, it was all over the floor and wonder of wonders, I was able to clean the mess up. And you could not tell the next morning that a kid had thrown up all over the floor. It was carpet, not tile, mind you. There's a difference between carpet and tile when you throw up on it. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that we have opportunity every day to walk according to the Christ-like ethic. We can joyfully lay down our lives in service to others. This is humility. This is love. This is walking by the Spirit and walking in the same manner as Christ walked. I suggest to you that at the very core of Christ-likeness is a loving, humble, sacrificial attitude that shows forth in action. This idea is expressed by John as he continues in his letter. We're getting closer to the end. Beginning in verse 7, we read, The truth clarified. The truth clarified. He says in verse 7, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. John relates walking in the same manner as Christ walked to an old commandment that his readers have had from the beginning. And it is a commandment that John says they have already heard. And so we do well to ask ourselves, what is the commandment that John is talking about? What is interesting is that John goes on to describe this old commandment as a new commandment. Listen to what he says, verse 8. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. What an encouragement. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What is John referring to? It is an old commandment, but it is a new command as well. And I submit that the command is old and that the readers were already familiar with it. 
It is something that they had already heard, perhaps from John himself. At the same time, the command when it was first introduced by Jesus was introduced as a new command. And listen to John's record of what Jesus declared on the occasion of the Last Supper. John 13, 34, Jesus, he knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows what is in store for him. And at the Last Supper, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This verse serves as a summary verse of what it means to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. We are called to love in the same manner that Christ loved us. Brothers, sisters, the king of glory surrendered his life in loving sacrifice and service to us. He had our good in mind. Our love for one another is to be fueled with the fire of the gospel. We are to love others in the same way that Christ has loved us. John does encourage his readers when he tells them that this ethic of love is true, not just in Christ, but it is true in them as well, he says. And John recognizes that the ethic of love is true in his readers because, he says, he sees, he observes as he looks at their lives. It is clear to him that the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The light of the glory of Almighty God and the person of Christ reigning in their hearts is being expressed. He sees the good in them and he wishes to affirm, to affirm that before continuing in verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother, he is in the darkness. Until now, opportunity to repent and to come into the light and to get yourself right with the Lord Jesus Christ and to ask for forgiveness for your hatred towards your brother and to instead love your brother. He says in verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and he walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friend, friends, John is one of those persons who has a very clear perception of spiritual reality. I believe this arises from his knowledge of and his intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. For John, against the backdrop of the blazing glory of the God who is light, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it is against the backdrop of this great and glorious God that John, a son of thunder, so boldly declares that we are left with no choice but to love one another. Light and darkness are not compatible. Love and hate do not go together. Today, we have reflected on the critical topic of salvation. John desires his readers to know that they are saved, but he does not want to leave them with a false assurance. He wants them to know that saving faith, you know, having come to know Christ, having experienced the love of God in their life, it results in transformation. John has made it clear that salvation is accompanied by ongoing obedience to God and Christ-like behavior. And as I have said before, I say again, the fuel for this, guys, is the gospel. The intent is not that you go and you start trying through the arm of your own flesh by picking yourself up by your bootstraps and, 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 and on your own, just seeking to obey the commands of God. Get plugged into the vine. This is what John says in John chapter 15. 
Okay, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. The key to the fruit bearing, the key to the love of the brethren is that we are in Christ. We know who he is, what he has done. We worship him, we behold him, and as we behold him, we are being transformed. That is the key. Behold Christ. Let your heart be open to the glory of the gospel. Allow yourself to behold him and to fall in love with him and pray to him if you struggle with your love for him, asking forgiveness to say, Lord, help me. What I love is that John gives to us that verse that we must hold tightly to, especially in times when we find ourselves to feel convicted. When we look at our life, we take stock and inventory and we realize we're not measuring up. And John says, if we confess our sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sin. Oh my goodness, if John had not said that, where would we be? And to purify us from all unrighteousness. And with that thought, let us close in prayer. I want to ask the ushers if they would please come forward as we prepare to give to the Lord. um, A little bit of what he has given to us. If you would join with me, please, in prayer. For the care group leaders, I believe that Pastor Mike will end up printing off some questions that will go on the seat and you can get them after the service. Care group questions. Let us pray. Uh, Dear God, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that if there by chance is anyone here who has yet to put their faith in Christ that Lord you would draw them nigh to yourself that you would open their heart and their eyes that they would repent of sin and believe in Christ today we pray Lord that there happens to be anyone who is here who perhaps says that they know Christ but by their deeds they are denying him Lord that you by your grace would convict them And by by the power of your spirit, Lord, drawing them to yourself, that you would fill them and cause them to walk in obedience. That, Lord, you would help us to heed your call upon us to live lives that are marked by obedience to you and Christ likeness. Lord, this is a high call to holiness. Even John himself says, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But again, the wonderful reminder that if if we do sin. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sin, not just ours, but for the sin of the whole world. God, let the power of your gospel reign supreme in our hearts. We ask of you for your glory, for the sake of Christ and for the advancement of your kingdom, for our good and for our joy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.